This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I would like to begin uh, by welcoming our very, very dear special guest, uh, Professor Banani, who uh, is, <clears throat> uh, we have a Iranian studies program, new Iranian studies program at Stanford, but Professor Banani is one of the founders of Iranian studies in America. He has trained a whole generation of uh, brilliant students, including my sister, I must say, who was his student. Uh, all of us who work in Iranian studies have one way or another benefited from his wisdom. And uh, I certainly have both learned from his wisdom and erudition and learned even more from his uh, singular humanity. Uh, he is truly a jewel of a human being, and it is my honor to have known him, and it is my honor to have him here, and I'm extremely grateful to him for having introduced me to our tonight's speaker. Without his introduction, I would have remained in Jahle Murakab, uh, <laughs> which is composite ignorance. Uh, and. Uh, I think part of the reason uh, that uh, this ignorance was uh, so composite is that uh, Professor Nakhjavani is truly uh, an intellectual's intellectual, a writer's writer, and much better known amongst the literati of Europe than uh, here in the United States. Her books have been published by some of the best publishing houses and uh, acclaimed in some of the most renowned literary magazines in Europe, uh, but her uh, humility, I think uh, it runs in the family, because uh, there is some relationship between Professor Banani and Professor Nakhjavani, uh, and the fact that the US is so far from what happens in Europe has meant that uh, uh, she has enjoyed more a reputation than the kind of fame that she needs and deserves, and I have no doubt will get. Uh, it is uh, my hope that uh, this will not be her last visit to the United States, and certainly not last visit to Stanford, uh, and we will have many more visits. Hopefully we can invite her back to stay uh, longer. Her life is truly uh, as global as her work is, uh, she has lived and worked, I think, in all the continents uh, inhabited by humankind. Uh, she has taught in some of the most prominent institutions uh, in the world. Uh, she is as much at home in Shakespeare as she is in Baudelaire. She is as competent uh, as a novelist as she is a literary critic. Uh, and uh, that combination uh, makes it truly, makes her truly uh, an intellectual and writer, uh, critic, and scholar of uh, uh, exemplary uh, erudition and exemplary uh, humanity and humility. I am truly honored to have her here, and I will now uh, ask her to kindly come and give us. <laughs> <clears throat> we even have some water for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, 
It's difficult to stand in front of you after such an introduction, and I, um, I wanted to say many of the same things. I wanted to first of all thank Professor Abbas Milani for this enormous honor and the esteem he's ha he has given me, but also to acknowledge the presence of my very dear uncle, Professor Banoni, who in fact is the one who has encouraged me to enter into the field of fiction. I wouldn't have written a word of imaginative prose if it hadn't been for him. And I have always wished that I had had the privilege of being his student, but by some strange circumstance, one of those ironies of life. Professor Milani's sister was his student, and she has become, in a sort of way, long distance, my teacher. So I feel there is a kind of tenuous but very precious li linearity link here between all of us, and I'm very, very honored to, to share this platform with an acknowledgement of all of them, both present and absent. I wished very much that uh, I wasn't in a position of introducing my own work to you. It's a very awkward thing to do, to have written a novel and then have to talk about it, to be the critic and the, the sort of an commentator of one's own work. It's very awkward indeed. But I know that many of you know the subject of my latest novel, and I'm going to take this opportunity for the next, maybe, how much time do I have? About as long as you are not tired, 45 minutes or so? If that is, con we will see how much you can stand. To introduce you to a little bit of what I have written last and to read some of the passages in the English version, which has not as yet been translated. Uh, I mean, not as yet been published. It's been translated, but it hasn't been written in its original. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's one of those stories which has had to be translated in the first place from its original Persian, because this is a Persian story. This is a story from the heart of Iran, from the heart of the 19th century, and it's the story of a woman. And I have lived all my life with the knowledge of this woman, and I have grown up admiring her and revering her, even though she was somewhat legendary to me. I didn't know many facts about her. But it's only been now, at the sort of latter end of my life, that I finally had the courage to put together what few facts I could find and to create a fiction which is basically inspired by her life and dedicated to her. I've called the book The Woman who read too much. And it begins in Iran with the story of this woman. I'm fascinated by her because although her story rises from Iran, I think she's probably the very first international Persian woman. <laughs> in the sense that she's a woman with a world-embracing vision, a woman who had the courage to rise above the element she lived in, and has had an impact not only on her own generation, but on many generations of women since. And not only in Iran, but really across the planet. I know of that because as a Baha'i, 
I am aware that Baha'is everywhere, from Papua New Guinea to Peru, know the name of this remarkable woman, Tahereh Oratul Ain, who in her own country and among her own compatriots and contemporaries was, alas, not much admired. And it was really because of that that I felt it had become the time in the 21st century to perhaps give her some homage. It seems to me that she has had as much impact on our times and in our presence and will surely be known in our future as some of the greatest figures of the last 160 years, which is the time since she was killed. The great figures of history like Martin Luther King and, and Gandhi that we know as part of our collective history as a human race, I think one day the name of Tahereh Qoratul Ain will rank among those names. And she will not only be known and loved and admired by Iranians everywhere, but will be recognized by the world. Maybe I can just begin by giving you a quick summary for those that don't know much about her the few facts that I could garner from her history, because when you want to write a story, of course, you have to get the facts straight first. If that character that you're dedicating your book to or is in, are inspired by um, has a historical um, reality, at least that's the way I look at it. When I look at history for inspiration, I must first get the facts straight so that then in the holes between the facts, I can invent the fictions. And what we know of Tahereh Qoratul Ain is brief, to put it mildly. We know she was born in Qazvin, the provincial city of Qazvin, in around 1817. There's some debate even about the date of her birth. Some people say it was four years earlier. She died, we know that for sure, in the summer of 1852, in the wake of an assassination attempt on Nasruddin Shah, the Qajar king who himself was assassinated at the end of the 19th century in 1896. We also know that this woman had an unusual education. She was recognized for her intelligence by her father, who must have been himself a unique individual. She came from a family of remarkable women, so she wasn't the only one who had intelligence in the family. She had a mother, and she had a great aunt, I believe, who was one of the calligraphers in the court of Fatalisha. But her mother was also known for her scholarship, known for her erudition. But it was her father who really had the key to open the doors to her education, and he permitted her to have the education of a boy, which is extraordinary in her times. So she traveled with her husband, uh, who was also her cousin, to Karbala and became one of the students behind the curtain. In other words, as he was being himself uh, educated to be a head, she too, from behind the curtain, listened to the debates, participated orally, and then actually interrupted the debates herself as she participated herself verbally in the discussions of that time. So this was a very unusual aspect of her, of her life. We know that she had that remarkable education. The other thing which is common knowledge about her, although it's equally legendary in the sense that we cannot pinpoint the day the exact moment, the exact circumstances. But everyone who writes about her, whether they condemn her or they praise her, 
because there are all the contradictions in those facts about her. Everyone agrees that this woman was unique because she took off the veil. In the middle of the 19th century, in Iran, a Persian woman had the courage in public to enter a room filled with some 81 men, unveiled. It was such a shocking thing to do that one man cut his own throat and ran from the, from the presence of this woman because he could not bear to, be, to put his eyes on her face. Another man raised his sword against her and there was consternation and a great separation of opinion about her action. Had she done right or had she done wrong? Was this a violation or was it a new beginning? And that debate is with us still today. That debate is no more resolved today than it was at her time, which is the reason I really wanted to bring her story to the English reading, the Western world, because I wanted the world to know that there was a woman in Iran who had raised that debate at that time and it is still percolating in our midst today throughout the world, not just the Muslim world, not just the Middle Eastern world, but throughout the capitals of Europe and all over the Western world as well. So these are very brief facts. You know a person was born, the person died. We know that she was strangled. Her body was thrown in a well and covered with stones. But what else do we know? When I came to write, I realized that whatever I could say could not possibly pretend to be a history. I'm not a historian, and I wouldn't want to presume to be able to write as a historian. Whenever anybody gives me a few facts, I immediately start imagining all the things around them. And I couldn't write a biography. Because what is there in that life that I just gave you that you could possibly turn into a biography? But on the other hand, when I came to write fiction, I said to myself, now, what kind of fiction can be written about a woman like this from the 19th century, from Iran? Can I write a historical fiction the way we write historical fictions in the West? Can I turn a character into Tahrir Oratul Ain? and have her walk into a room, open her mouth, and start speaking. I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I have too much, uh, too many anxieties. Maybe I have too many veils over my own psyche, I don't know. It seemed to me that that kind of historical fiction, which is a typically Western historical fiction style, where you make your major protagonist the central heroine, and you get into her skin and you look through her eyes and you feel her palpitating and you watch her menstrual blood and you do all the rest of the stuff which is necessary to do if there is going to be psychological realism in this story. That seemed to me an improper, inadequate method of talking about this person. I realized I'd have to invent a new kind of genre. At least, that was a very presumptuous thing to do, but I just was groping in the dark. How can I tell her story? Is she allegory? Is she fictional? What kind of a story can I tell? And I realized, I'm the one telling it. I can't pretend to be in the 19th century. 
I can't pretend to be a Persian woman of the 19th century. Here I am, living in the 21st century with a mosaic life of my own, which has given me an association with more of the corridor than the rooms, if you know what I mean. A foot here, a foot there, not really belonging to any one room, but having an education from one country, a culture, my heart in Iran, like a pomegranate. I hope I never lose the taste of that country in my, in my heart's lips, if you like, but my mind educated in the West, my feet going all over the place. So how can I possibly pretend not to be a postmodernist writer, if you like? So here I am talking about it from a very modern perspective. What's going to be the hybrid result? What kind of monstrous creature am I going to produce out of this kind of combination? So I'm going to now tell you how I wrote this story and what kind of shape it is. I decided it couldn't be a linear story, starting from A to B to C to C, telling you the story in history. Because I was looking back over my shoulder to the past, and whenever you look back over your shoulder, when you try to remember, you remember in patches, you remember in pieces. It's a jigsaw puzzle. You remember a bit here, a bit there, and that was in fact what I'd found with the, with the facts that I'd discovered. A little bit here, a little bit there, several contradictions, and I knew I was going to have to try to make sense out of them all. So the chronology of this story is like a jigsaw puzzle. It jumps about and it leaves the reader to find the pieces, to find the ways in which it fits together. And it starts with a physical cutting up of the book itself. So I begin, in fact, by making the book into four books. And I thought, with your permission, I could just start by reading a little bit of each of the four books. The four books are called The Book of the Mother, The Book of the Wife, the book of the sister and the book of the daughter. Mothers, daughters, sisters, wives. The four stereotypes, the four roles that women have always traditionally had and identified with. And these four roles, these four stereotypes, for me, were a little bit like the four walls of the Anderun, of the women's quarters in a Middle Eastern house. Because women were encased incarcerated, confined inside those roles, inside those walls. But each one of those books, which is dedicated to these roles of women, begins in a rather curious way. I'll read and you'll see what I mean. The book of the mother begins like this. When the Shah was shot, he staggered several paces in the shrine and fell stone dead in the lap of an old beggar woman. He'd been turning towards his wife's tomb at that moment, and the beggar was sitting next to the alcove where the assassin had been hiding near the door. Even if she were at fault for having strayed beyond her allotted corner in the cemetery outside the mosque, it would have been unwise to draw attention to that fact. The killer was arrested and identified. The occasion and location were carefully noted for posterity. But there was naturally no mention of a woman in the history books. A veil was drawn over the sordid details of His Majesty's death. It was more useful to evoke the failed attempt 
of the life on the life of the king half a century before than to contemplate the actual circumstances of his assassination. The king is shot and we remember an attempt on his life half a century before. In the first paragraph of the first book, you get the goalposts of the chronology that we're following. From the end of the century, the 19th century, to its middle. From an assassinated king to an attempt on his life. And the story that I'm going to tell you takes place between those two events or thereabouts. And everything is somewhat like a calendar, a chronology of blood. Because you notice that the story begins with a dead man. It's dedicated to a woman, the book of the mother, but it begins with a dead man. And the book of the wife brings you to another dead man. When the mayor was hanged, they said his wife stopped talking. She had rarely been at a loss for words as long as he was alive, but death can have a curious impact on the garrulous. She was speechless as soon as her husband was summoned to the palace, and by the time his body dangled at the city gates, his turban gone, his beard cut off, his face fixed in a grimace of surprise, she was completely mute. The third book, which is the book of the sister, begins like this. When the Grand Vizier died in the bathhouse in the provinces, everyone knew a woman was behind it. The surly strangers who followed him into the building on the appointed day were men, of course. The special attendants who assisted with his ablutions were, uh, were naturally men too. The gates to the Garden of Fien, in which the baths were situated, was secured with the seal of the most powerful man in the land. But it was not difficult to guess who broke open all the locks. The last book is the book of the daughter, and that begins like this. When the mullah was found stabbed in the mosque in the last year of the old king's reign, they said, the daughter of the house had done it. An old woman discovered the cleric, bowed in his orisons, as she thought, and left him to his business at first. She was a regular at the mosque, who swept the floor before the call to prayer each Friday and washed the dead on weekdays, and she learned to stay clear of prostate priests, for their daily irritation cost her more in curses than she earned in prayers over a fortnight. But when the old man remained flat on his face for as long as it took her to sweep the main hall, and when she drew near and saw the spreading darkness on the stones and heard the gurgling in his throat, heaven preserve us from the thought, she fled into the market square. Foul murder, she screamed. Blood in his mouth and murder, just as she said. So you have four books dedicated to mothers, daughters, sisters and wives starting with a dead king, a dead mayor, a dead grand vizier, and a dead mullah. Mullah, minister, mayor, and monarch. The four great ranks of power in society in the 19th century. And of course, as you know, whenever you start a story with a corpse, you're waiting to find out who did it. So we're expecting that someone's going to be blamed. And there seems to be the blame already levelled 
at a woman. Of course, in this story, you discover, like in most detective stories, that the person that you're expecting to be the culprit usually turns out to be not quite the one you expect. And in this case, it's not only the woman is not quite the one you expect or somewhat different, but it's not the woman at all, it's her words. In other words, it's not who she is, it's what she said. And there seems to be a consequence here that has that cause. Each time you begin with a dead body, it's the consequence. And you hunt back to the cause. And in this case, each time, the cause is words. The words uttered by this woman, who apparently broke all the stereotypes. Now, the, the four roles that I started off with aren't the only stereotypes in this story. There are many stereotypes, and I'm just checking the time there. Yes, there are many stereotypes, not just female ones, but also cultural ones. And in the course of this story, we're constantly breaking the cultural stereotypes. And I just thought I'd give you a few tastes as we go through the story of some of the stereotypes that get broken. And the first ones I wanted to share with you are the stereotypes of the Persians in relation to the British, and then the British in relation to the Persians. So there's a stereotype of what the wife of the British ambassador at that time was expecting when she went to visit the mother of the Shah, who was, of course, based on the historical figure of Mahda Ulya, the mother of Nasruddin Shah. And when she goes to the palace, uh, she had uh, a great shock. She didn't see at all what she was expecting. And I'll read you a little bit of that. When she made her first courtesy call to the Qajar Palace, her husband had instructed her to avoid the subject of food, food shortages. Stick to slaves, he said. It's less awkward, especially in translation. Emphasize emancipation, he advised. Flatter the queen about her son's agreement to abide by international regulations. When the door of the antechamber was opened by a sinuous negress, the compliments died in her ladyship's throat. Whatever conventions the Shah may have signed were apparently not in effect in the royal Andarun. But what embarrassed her even more than the slave trade? What caused her to blush and be tongue-tied throughout the visit was the Queen's state of undress. Her Highness was attired in a manner that quite shocked her guest. Each time her ladyship lowered her eyes, she saw a pair of naked legs sticking out beneath impossibly short skirts. Whenever she lifted them higher, she had to stare at a bare midriff, glaringly open to the waist. And when she looked straight up, she was at the mercy of that black-rimmed, brazen gaze. Under the riot of shawls, the mutiny of petticoats, and the rebellion of extravagant jewellery, the mother of the Shah appeared to be wearing hardly anything at all. On the other hand, when the mother of the Shah looks at the wife of the British ambassador, this is what she sees. The Queen scrutinised the Englishwoman closely as she came through the door. This one now, she thought, 
was certainly no threat. This woman would never be a troublemaker. She was one of those mousy creatures who blushed easily and didn't know what to do with her hands. Why was it, thought the mother of the Shah, that Western women blushed so easily? They might be less self-conscious, she said to herself, if they wore veils. Perhaps this one was feeling particularly awkward because she was expecting her first child. She was newly married, after all. Perhaps it was because she was unacquainted with Persian customs, for instead of sitting sensibly on the ground, she'd perched uncomfortably on a chair, obliging the mother of the Shah to do likewise and forcing all the princesses to stand as stiff as ramrods round the room. Perhaps she thought them all barbarians and didn't trust herself among the natives, thought Her Highness bitterly. For the country was in such a state of turmoil that there was even talk of revolt in the women's quarters. The Englishwoman probably didn't trust domestics either, given the way she gawped at the Nubian, who was the Queen's personal confidant. But in the last analysis, it may have been the fault of the Frenchwoman that she was so ill at ease, Translation is a dangerous business, and everyone knew that Madame, with her giggles and her smirks, had sold something besides flowers in the streets of Lyon before marrying a Persian tailor and rising to the giddy heights of royal translator in the women's quarters of the Shah. Well, those are the opinions across those cultures, but there are also other kinds of stereotypes that are being broken in this story. And one is the expectations, the romantic expectations of the Westerner about Iran. And there are two of these that I wanted to quickly read to you. One is the expectations of the wife, again, of the British ambassador, when she first meets the sister. So we go from one book to another, in the sister's book, in the story of the book of the sister, we have a meeting between the mother of, uh, the wife of the British ambassador and the first time that she meets the sister of the Shah, who has just come back from the provinces after the tragic murder, the death of her husband. And of course the Westerner, you must remember this is Victorian England, and we have just had the death of the prince consort, Albert. In history and there was of course as you know the whole country plunged in mourning and the idea of the mourning widow became a romantic ideal that continued through the next uh, five decades practically and every woman who had a dead member of the family was dressed in black and it was a very romantic and heartbreaking experience that they never forgot and it was etched in her ladyship's heart that this was the kind of widow she was going to meet. When the wife of the British ambassador finally met the sister of the Shah on the occasion of her second courtesy call at court, some weeks after the ignominious funeral of the murdered Grand Vizier, she thought the little widow dreadfully dull. Her ladyship had nurtured high expectations of the young maiden, she had imagined that the princess would be distinguished for her intelligence, remarkable for her independence, notable for her bearing. For, after all, hadn't she chosen to leave the court with her own two small children in order to accompany the old vizier when he was banished to the provinces? Why, she had shared her howder, as his howder as well as his humiliations with him all the way to Kashan. 
the gruesome details of his death, which filtered back to the capital two months after his demise, had only intensified the desire of the Englishwoman to meet this Persian heroine who had taken such a bold stand beside her husband in his hour of need. But the Princess Royal greatly disappointed her. She turned out to be a dumpy little figure, unbecomingly cocooned in black taffeta, who hung her head with the air of a simpleton and didn't utter a word the entire afternoon. Well, the colonel, who is her husband, the British ambassador himself, also has stereotypical ideas about Iran, even though he has spent a long period of time being the ambassador there, the envoy plenipotentiary, and we hear this scene on his return to London after his retirement, we hear about his opinion of some news that has just been heard about the hanging of the mayor. You remember the second book begins with when the mayor was hanged. Then we go on and we hear about how the British ambassador, now retired in London, learns about the hanging of the mayor. It has taken place, of course. Historically, this is based on the episode of the Great Famine in Persia in uh, the middle of the 19th century, in 1861 in particular. That, that winter was a terrible famine, and it was notable for the fact that the women of the city, the capital, became so desperate that they finally went in protest to the gates of the palace of the Shah with their veils stripped off, their faces bared and marked with, with mud to try to appeal for his mercy. It was such a shocking thing to do that they hoped that this would shake him and would, would break the famine because they had been suffering too much. There, there had been recurring famines, of course, and I have played with that idea through several of my chapters. There's always the possibility of a famine and the mayor of the city of Tehran is constantly taking advantage of that fact and using it to exploit and manipulate for his own, uh, to, for his own benefit. But in this case, the news finally gets to London because it was such a bad famine. Reports of the bread riots in Tehran did not appear in the London papers until one month after the mayor was hanged. Mutiny was more sensational than starvation to the British public, and the recent atrocities committed in Kaunpur more relevant than the fate of wretches famished in Persian snows. When the pages of the press were not taken up with debate about the American Negro and the Civil War in the old colonies, they were filled with melancholy eulogies about the untimely demise of the Prince Consort at home. Besides, even when the news of the riots did reach London, it was hard to associate the legendary land of the lion and the sun with hunger. In the popular imagination, P Persia positively reeled with loaves of bread and flasks of wine. The brief notice read by the colonel that day did, however, allude to the hanging of the mayor. Since his retirement, the former envoy had kept a close eye on Persia from the precincts of his London club. He had advised the Foreign Office about British interests during the Anglo-Persian War and had strong opinions on the safe asylum of Armenians in that country. 
As his handsome cab swept through the fog that evening, he brooded over the threat posed to the Shah by women without veils. He pondered over the strange story of that female heretic, which he'd heard from his chargé d'affaires after coming back to Persia in the company of his bride. And he remembered how he'd rejected it out of hand, dismissing as preposterous the idea that an unveiled woman could threaten the stability of a country. Now, a decade later, he wondered if he'd been wrong. The colonel had been reading a great deal of nonsense in the papers recently about women's rights. It was rather disconcerting to discover that a notorious conference on the question of universal suffrage, which took place in what used to be the American colonies that same year he resumed his post in Tehran, had been foreshadowed that very summer by a gathering of insurgents in the Persian countryside, about which his chargé d'affaires had tried to warn him on his return. Was it possible that the words spoken by an unveiled woman to some fourscore men in an obscure corner of Mazandaran had been echoed just two weeks later in a declaration of rights signed in upstate New York? It sounded like a conspiracy of international dimensions. That, of course, is a historical fact, that the conference at which Goratul Ain unveiled herself for the first time in Badasht took place about two weeks before the conference in Seneca Falls, New York. And I think that's about the biggest stereotype we can break, that the idea of women's rights, women's rights, universal suffrage, may have actually been born and originated in Iran. That does seem to be an astonishing surprise. The entrance of the figure of the poetess of Ghazvin into my story, of course, is the moment that you're waiting for all the way through in this story. And when she does finally arrive, captured in the provinces, brought back to the capital and into the mayor's house, where she is going to be kept prisoner for three and a half years until her death. The, the moment is observed and witnessed by the wife of the mayor, who is in the room above in the women's quarters and is anxiously peeking out of the window, very curious indeed to see the arrival of this prisoner about whom she's heard so much. The first flakes were beginning to fall when the mayor finally came back through the arch after ordering the howdah out of the premises. And this time, his wife saw with a quickening of her pulse that there was a veiled figure behind him. The prisoner was dressed in travelling garb that was not very flattering. She wore baggy trousers bunched at the ankles with rough cloths covering her feet. Her dark cloak was caked to the knees in mud and the latticework over her face was stained and grimy. The mayor's wife stared at her curiously. She was not tall. She was not short. But that was all that could be said about her. A woman in a veil is like a book with its covers closed. There she stood with her back to the wall, the flakes settling on her shoulders. There she waited, 
black against the falling whiteness, and there she remained, like a stroke of ink against the snow, until the mayor's wife began to shiver, just looking at her in the fading winter light. The woman on the opposite side of the courtyard bent her bared head and scooped a handful of snow from the edge of the pool, says when she finally takes the outer cover off. She starts to wipe her hands over her face. Her face was still circled by a scarf after she pulled off the white ruband. The face cloth covering her nose and mouth had been knotted behind and she shook her hair free now with visible relief and passed a wet hand swiftly across both cheeks when it was off. Her skin glistened as she straightened her back and looked around. She gazed across the pool. She gazed up at the breezeway. She glanced towards the kitchens and the doors of the women's quarters. And then, suddenly, she looked up towards the windows of the tea room, her eyes shining. The mayor's wife feels absolutely naked when this woman looks at her. That's the first time she sees her. But the rest of the time that we see her, she's constantly breaking the mould. She's constantly surprising expectations. She's never doing what anyone expects of her. And the wife of the mayor, at a certain point, has to ask herself, why the hell has this woman put herself in this position? Why has she allowed herself to be persecuted and hounded and finally captured and put in this miserable condition when, my goodness, she came from a good family, she had every educational opportunity, she could have done well for herself in her life, and this is what the mayor's wife thinks. Why had she submitted to this wretchedness? Why had she put herself in this position? She was a young woman from a privileged family. She was educated and attractive. Why had she chosen this humiliation instead of living in comfort and ease? She could have been a mistress of her own house, in command of her own Anderun. She could have handled her husband cleverly, like all the rest of us, and still had her way with him, like every other woman. Did she think she was different from all the rest? Did she think she was any better than the wife of the mayor of Tehran? Why, I've done the necessary, thought the mayor's wife stoutly. I've played the game and lived the good life. What's wrong with that, pray? There is another moment when she breaks the stereotypes and that's when the discussion is going on about what on earth to do with her. Okay, we've captured her, we've brought her to the, to the capital, we've incarcerated her in the house of the mayor and of course the king wants to see her. I haven't had time to read you that passage but there is a scene in which the king argues with his mother and the mother certainly doesn't want him to see this upstart with her face possibly unveiled and there is the consequence of that that the king extends a certain degree of protection on this captive and she's given a certain amount of comfort but what the heck do you do with her once she's there you can't get rid of her and I want to just read to you a paragraph about how a woman heretic breaks the stereotypes they're having a big debate about what should be done with the poetess of Ghazvin. According to custom, the law of retaliation was generally applicable to women in cases of adultery only, or murder. Woman could be butchered 
Women could be butchered with impunity when they were innocent, but could only be officially killed for infidelity or willful slaughter. According to custom too, though violence was frequently practised against the female sex, a woman had to be guilty of poverty to be accused of murder or adultery. It was rare for a wealthy woman or a lady of rank to be thrown from the top of a tower or stoned, for example. The only other way to merit lawful death was by apostasy. But a female heretic would have, have to be impervious to reform before she could be proven guilty of that sin. She would have had to influence others to her misguided ways before she could be condemned for such a crime. And only an ecclesiastic court could pronounce on such matters. Now, the Grand Vizier was strongly opposed to handing the poetess to the ecclesiastic courts. Oh, the priests have altogether too much power already, he told the Shah. He suspected that they were only insisting on this case in order to gain more. Besides, there was a contradiction inherent in the matter. The existence of an unrepentant female was theologically inconceivable, according to the laws of religious jurisprudence. If a woman influenced others, it would imply that she had a mind of her own. If she were denounced for maintaining her opinions, it would acknowledge her right to think. But how could this be if a woman only reflected the thoughts of others? Certain doctors of jurisprudence, he said, even denied that women had minds at all. So there is very, very little that you can do with a woman who is an apostate. And one of the few things possible was having kept her under incarcerated conditions and made attempts to re-educate her and she didn't respond. You could just sort of stop feeding her and she would conveniently disappear. Then you couldn't say that you had killed her because to kill her would dignify her too much. Are you getting tired? I don't want to overstay my welcome. I'm going to jump to the, towards the end of the book. And if there is time, I will read you a moment's dialogue between the poetess of Ghazvin and her own father, who was a cleric, who was a man of jurisprudence himself, who knew very well what the rules were. And this is a scene which takes place in the last book, the Book of the Daughter, which is partly, of course, about the poetess herself as the daughter of the house, and partly a book, a story, which is seen through the eyes of her own daughter, a little girl of approximately seven, who actually witnesses the last days of her mother's life. In this scene, which takes place just before the poetess of Ghazvin escapes from her father's house, there is a great debate going on. The, the last book, if you remember, begins with when the mullah was stabbed in the mosque. They said the daughter of the house had done it, and of course the daughter of the house is blamed for this murder because she had looked at her uncle as he was cursing and had said, Oh, uncle, I see your mouth filled with blood. Dreadfully fatal words. Because when he was found stabbed in the mosque, everybody blamed her for having done it because she had seen that blood in his curses. She had seen the consequence 
of bloodshed in his words. She had seen how he was instigating violence, how he was inciting murder with his words, but she was accused of actually having murdered him, although she obviously had nothing to do with it. As a result, her father promises to keep her closed up in the house, and this is the scene between them. The poetess of Gazvin allowed her white hairs to grow after the old mullah was stabbed in the mosque. She no longer believed in discussion or debate. She no longer went to the public baths either, but used the little marble bathing pool in the cellar of the house. She said there was no point in using henna or words anymore. When no one listens, she said, there's no point in talking. But everyone knew that it was because her father did not let her leave the premises. Even after the murderer gave himself up, the daughter of the house had been obliged to remain under lock and key for her own safety, her father said. Given the mood of seething resentment and incipient violence in Gazvin, the father of the poetess felt he was justified in maintaining this strict control over her movements. How could he allow his daughter to wander about, he said, when half the town were aroused against her? His daughter objected to the strictures vociferously. How safe was she in this house anyway, she retorted, when the servants had been bribed to kill her and her cousins had tried twice to poison her already. What was the use of keeping her locked up then? Her father wrung his hands and groaned. He had done his utmost to control who went in and out of the walls, but he could not heal the treachery within them. Why, she appealed, why had he confined her like this? She begged him to let her go. Let her escape somewhere, anywhere. Just let her go away from Gazvin. He protested that he'd done everything for her comfort. Was she not in her own rooms, situated, surrounded by her own books? Did she not have her own maid? But was she her pris his prisoner or his daughter, she cried. What right had he to put her under this enforced detention, to treat her in this inhuman fashion? Right, spluttered her father. He glared at this daughter, scandalised. She was not kneeling before him, as she should. She was not sitting with her head bowed in his presence, as might be expected of the daughter of the house. She was pacing restlessly back and forth across the room. It's hard to glare satisfactorily at a woman in constant motion. He lost his temper with her. Had she forgotten to whom he was talking? He began indignantly. Did she, didn't she know he was her father? She should obey him, respect him, do her proper duty towards him. By what right was she even questioning him? He choked then and couldn't hardly speak. The daughter of the house frowned. There was no point in pursuing this line of argument. There was no way she could fulfil her father's expectations any more than she could expect him to understand her appeals. The world changed when definitions of womankind were altered. She struggled to curb her impatience because she knew how much her father loved her. She knew he was only trying to find a compromise, trying to accommodate to the demands of her cousins, trying to protect her from their bloodlust. But she wasn't going to stay trapped in her library to smooth everyone's ruffled pride. She refused to be their scapegoat, she said. 
Her father rocked back and forth where he was sitting for a few minutes, wrapped in his abba, struggling to regain his composure. His daughter had stopped pacing and was standing before him, her arms defiantly crossed. He avoided looking up at her. Couldn't she understand? He would be blamed for negligence, he finally said. Couldn't she see that he would be shamed by his peers, ridiculed by everyone, if he allowed her to come and go as she pleased after all that had happened? She was exasperated despite her resolve to control her temper. She burned with indignation, not against her father, but against the gossip. She knew all too well what people were saying, that he'd raised a viper in the nest, that he'd let a scorpion into his house, that a hen crowed instead of a rooster in this family. She was all too familiar with the vapid chatter, the usual tittle-tattle, the rot. So he was keeping her locked up, she supposed grimly, just to give everyone else the impression that he was doing right. But he had sworn, protested her father, beginning to weep. He had sworn to keep her under house arrest for her own good. He'd assumed this responsibility before witnesses for her own sake. Or for her re-education, perhaps, she interrupted angrily. And for once her bitterness got the better of her. Everyone in the ecclesiastical community would give him credit for doing that, wouldn't they? She continued. But had he forgotten that he was the one who'd educated her himself from the start? Did he not remember how he had trained her to search for the truth, no matter how high the cost? Did he really imagine that he could dissuade her from pursuing that path now? She had no intention of doing penance for thinking. He was merely hoping to prevent worse punishments, her father answered, his voice cracking. These people were hell-bent on harming her. They could kill her for apostasy. For the love of God, he begged. I've already lost my pride, my profession, and my reputation in this town. Don't let me lose you too. And he hid his face in his hands and wept. The library walls seemed to shrink back at his sobs. The books on the shelves seemed to turn their faces away from the poetess of Gazvin. The lovely linden tree in the courtyard sighed as it scattered its golden leaves in the gust of wind that rattled the panes. She kneeled at his feet then and bowed her head to beg his forgiveness. She said nothing more to him about her desire to have her freedom, for she could see his heart was breaking. She became gentle and compliant after that, which was worse than arguing for he knew her patience was more dangerous than her rage. Her father redoubled his vigilance. He had learned that when his daughter issued challenges like this, it was better to avoid their consequences. So he was hardly surprised when one chill day, soon after the last swallows left the eaves, that autumn, he knocked on the library door and heard, no answer. The bird had flown. She escapes. Nobody knows where she's gone. And for one year, the poetess of Gazvin wanders from place to place, from house to house, from village to village and town to town, seeking refuge where she can until she is finally captured.
When she goes, her father is heartbroken. And I wanted to just read you this because this is leading up finally to the end of the story. How empty the library was after her going. Her father stayed in there, touching the spines of the books, caressing the pages she used to read to him. He lingered the whole day in there after her escape, murmuring, weeping. How he missed the sound of her voice, her chanting. How he deplored the silence in the Andarun. She had taken her pen case with her and her reeds, but it was only after several hours had passed that he noticed the gaps on the shelves. She had chosen carefully. She had selected only the most important to her, and the spaces where the books used to be mocked him, teased him with his ignorance of their titles. He had the impression that if he could only remember which ones she'd chosen, he might be able to trace where she'd gone. But try as he might, he could not summon those texts to memory, nor retain why it was that they'd been so important to his daughter. He recalled their passionate arguments about them. He remembered their differing interpretations of them, but the substance of the books, which were the pivot of their talks, eluded him. He realised that those gaps on the library shelves bore witness to his greatest loss of all. For without the knowledge of what, would, what had once lain on them, the mind, as well as the body of his beloved daughter, had slipped between his fingers. Well, I'm coming to the end, and thank you for your patience. I want to tell you why I wrote this book. I have a great fascination for lost texts, the first book I wrote, called The Saddlebag, is about a saddlebag which was filled with texts that somehow got lost in the desert between Mecca and Medina. It's a historical fact. It was stolen by a Bedouin, and we don't know any more about it. And so I spun a tale on the subject of that saddlebag and what happened to it and who found it, and one never knows what was in it, because whoever gets the saddlebag sees something different inside it. This book is about a woman, and all the way through the story, you're looking at this woman through different people's point of view, through the mother of the Shah, through the sister of the Shah, through the wife of the mayor, all these different women and men who tell you what they think she is, until finally, you get closer and closer, and you literally bend over the well and look in the darkness and possibly see your own face. It's about the definition of who each of us is rather than just another woman. Because she breaks the stereotypes and she is all of us. Because I think all of us do break the stereotypes, whether we're men or women. But it also is about lost texts. Because there is the story that when the Tahareq or Ain knew that she was going to be killed, she anticipated that in the aftermath of the assassination attempt, which I mentioned at the very beginning of the story, when that attempt was made on the life of the young Shah, it was an excuse for mayhem and bloodshed in the kingdom. 
and many, many hundreds and thousands of innocent people were massacred, were brutally killed. Most of them have remained nameless. They're in the dust and no one knows who they were. But she's one of the few whose names have remained alive, although her body was pelted with stones and forgotten. When she knew that she was going to die, she prepared her affairs and she gave the key to her chest to the wife of the mayor. And she also gave her a bundle. Now, according to the history that we know, the few facts that have garnered, and who knows how, how historically verifiable those facts are, they are, as I said, essentially legendary facts. According to these so-called facts, this bundle that she gave to the wife of the mayor, she said to her, three days after my death, a woman will come to the door. Give her this bundle. We don't know what was in that bundle. I mean, if a historian were to write about this, he would probably relegate that little detail of the bundle to a footnote because nothing can be verified about it. But I have written a story about the history of women in Iran in the 19th century. And who has written the story of the women in Iran in the 19th century? They only exist in the footnotes. You have to invent. You have to imagine. Where else can you find their story? Where else can you hear their voices? You have to use your imagination to know who the, they were and what they did and what they said and what happened to them. So I took the liberty of inventing what was in that bundle. And this last passage that I'm going to read to you is the words of the woman who comes to the door. Eternity stood at the gates of the mayor's house. I was nobody's sister, nobody's mother, nobody's wife. But I must have been time's daughter, for it seemed I had been standing at that gate forever. One has to read backwards and forwards simultaneously in such situations. I was waiting there for the books, but I was prepared to drop everything and run for it the minute that mad dog came any closer. She can hear a mad dog at the end of the alley. She's knocking on the door and she wants that door to open before the mad dog comes any closer but I was prepared to drop everything and run the minute that mad dog came any closer. The power of words to transform the world depended on the distance between a dog and a gate at that moment. It hovered in the gap between trust and fear. Her legacy to us was that uncertain, the future of women in Persia, that precarious. It hung on a prayer. To read is to pray she used to tell us. To write is to trust. Illiteracy is nothing but fear. She wanted us to be fearless, to see with our own eyes, hear with our own ears, read the books of creation and revelation for ourselves. She taught us to take risks. If a daughter cannot move for fear of error, for terror of doing wrong, let her give her body to the northern winds a little more each day, she used to say, beseeching aid from the unfathomable, the unknown. If a daughter cannot dream at night for frustration, she told us, 
let her sleep with her face turned south, seeking relief from the most merciful, the clear. If a daughter tastes bile on her tongue and bitterness in swallowing, let her lift her palms to the western skies and ask assistance from the limpid, the wise. And if a daughter cannot breathe on rising because of filial expectations, she said, let her address her dawn prayers to the unconstrained, the unrestrained, the wild. There was no mention of dogs in the prayer, but she urged us not to be too literal-minded. It's an occupational hazard for women, she used to say. We have many roles, but only one vocation. Wives, we may be, according to dowry, decision or destiny. Mothers, we can become by accident or by design. And not every woman is a sister, even lawfully. But daughterhood comes with the casing. That we're locked in. And while there are a thousand ways to fail the obligation, there's no way to change that fact. Only remember, she often smiled, there's more to literacy than facts. I knew that the gate of the mayor's house on which I knocked that day was the threshold between facts and fictions. I knew that it was now or never as I stood there waiting. It was happening then as well as just before each knock at that door. And I suspected that the sound of that summons would be heard not only three days after my mistress died, but across the courtyards of the centuries. Years after the books were delivered, it would, and I was no longer midwife to them, I knew that knocking would still echo across time. It would reverberate through all eternity. Her books were a legacy to the unborn daughters of the world. Thank you. Distinguish fact from fiction, if you want. <laughs> yes. Oh, it was written in neither. It was written in English. Exactly. You see, part of my problem is that I don't have a publisher yet in English. The book doesn't fit into the stereotypes either. We have the French, we have, we have the Italian, we have the Korean, if you want, but not yet the English. It's, it's one of those strange ironies that I myself had to translate the language of my heart in which I knew the story of Tahereh, which was inherited from the Persian, essentially. I translated it already by putting it into English, but then the only versions that are available are the translated versions, yes, yes, so far. No, I said I didn't feel I could fit her into that form for some reason. At least the way I've 
seen historical novels. You know, historical no well, you, you should tell me more about historical novels as being a Persian form, because I should learn from you first before I say anything. Are they? No, I don't think they're either Persian or Western. I guess what I meant was that they are the, the novel of psychological realism, which uses history, is not appealing to me for this story. I meant the, the, the for example, when you make your main protagonist, your heroine, your, the, your point of contact with events that take place. Well, first of all, most people know the events. A story like Susan Sontag's uh, Under the, the Volcano, uh, what is it called? Not Under the Volcano, that's my, Malcolm Lowry. Well, she wrote The Volcano, I think. It's just called The Volcano. And it's set in the... It, it's a Napoleonic period, which everybody knows about. So already you're drawing on a historical context which is by and large familiar. Then you have a, a, a perspective on the characters which has become common to us over the last 250 years of the novel in the West, starting with Richardson, you know, and Clarissa and so on, coming to the 19th century great novels, which have given us that, that habit of approaching a novel, the Tolstoyan novel, in real time, looking at the focus of a character which is giving us the perspective of that world around that character, through the eyes of that character, it, intensely psychological in its veracity. Um, when I came to write this story, I found I could not, first of all, cut the dress until I'd woven the cloth. So I had to almost create the world first before I started giving the characters in it as a point of reference. So... Uh, who outside the small circle of knowledgeable Middle East scholars and Iranian studies scholars knows about Qajar Iran? Who knows even within that context much about the lives of women in Iran at that time? So it was almost as if I had to invent a world before I could actually start assuming the role inside that world. But the other reason I didn't feel comfortable putting myself in the character of the main protagonist was because I have a certain sort of pudeur about the rights of the dead. It seems to me that the dead have rights. And when we are taking a character from history, I personally constrain myself about what I put into their mouths and what I have them say. I know that this is not fashionable. This is not at all the way in which uh, a writer is supposed to behave in a postmodern world where anything goes, where my point of view is my own individual right. I mean, in France, we just had that book, I've forgotten the name of it, by the chap who got the uh, Prix Goncourt just now. He's assumed the role of the wife of um, Scott Fitzgerald. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a Zelda, right. It's a, it's a classic example of a historical... First of all, everybody knows Scott Fitzgerald. Everybody knows the context of the times. And he's done the classic European-style thing, the Western thing, of going into the skin of the individual and seeing through her eyes. We're all very familiar with that. For some reason, I felt I couldn't put these borrowed robes 
on the character of Tahere. I felt as if I had to find her robes or her voice or first get to her and see what she wanted to say. Almost ask her permission, if you like. This is, as I said, not at all fashionable, to have that kind of respect for the dead. But there's probably another way you can tell me I should have seen it. Or no, of course not. But uh, who am I to say it? But you know, the, the idea that that kind of a historical novel is uh, Western and mm -hmm. comes from the tradition you mentioned, mm -hmm. I think is a questionable. One yes. can argue with it. Yes. One could say that there are traditions of historical uh, writing, fictional writing from Shahzad. Mm -hmm Yes. Well, I guess I felt more in common with Shahzad and the, tr which is not so psychologically oriented, which is telling a tale. The, so the, the other point that I am very curious, I haven't read obviously the novel yet, but you know, Kundera has some uh, very interesting point. It says uh, if you're going to write a novel, you can't uh, have a sacred attitude towards your hero. Mm -hmm. You have to allow the hero, the humanity, the mm -hmm. frailty. That's right. And the kind of a reverence you have for Lorenzo Lane. How do you reconcile that with yeah. the ambiguity that a character in a novel requires? Well, I was hoping that by reading you the chapter in which she has an argument with her father, you might have heard a slight lack of reverence. Um, both in her attitude to him and my attitude to her. I find her um, not to be, you know, I, I mm, um, there are many places in the novel in relation to the family members where I go out of my way to show what she would have been like from their point of view. That she is a headstrong, domineering, insufferable creature. In, from the point of view, for example, some of her sisters. I mean, it's just unbearable. How would you deal with a woman like that in the family, you know? Um, from her daughter's point of view, that there's a, there's a heartbreaking scene where she says, I don't want to be um, interrupted. I, I don't want to be disturbed. And the daughter is outside the door. And, she, and she's thinking, even for me? You know, what would a, what would a daughter of such a woman feel like? So it seems to me that um, I've made that, but I only do that at the end. In other words, it's, I've tried to get to her, unveiling her layer by layer by layer until you finally get to her voice. Now, I didn't choose to read you that because I looked at the watch and it was quarter past and you had been so patient. But at the very end of the book, um, I unveil her voice totally. So it's no longer reported speech, which is what I usually use, but it's actually her voice and it's her poetry. Um, and that poetry, I think, tells you a great deal about her as a woman. Um, it's a very internal voice. Um, but maybe I had to prepare myself to get to that voice. But it seems to me that it was more appropriate for that story. The unveiling of a woman is not something you do instantly. It's been already... 160 years and we haven't managed it. So I think 350 pages isn't so bad. <laughs> I really think it becomes much stronger. The, the, the voice is not her voice. 
that she appears in a much stronger, beautiful way as you see her from a distance. I think the distance of the beginning, this gradual distance until you reach her voice, makes her much more powerful. I'm, I'm referring to the scene which is so beautiful, where she's coming with on the, to Tehran, or at the, you know, to see the Shah, they have asked her to come. And at that scene, where suddenly she, her maid is going to be violated by the soldiers. Mm. And the way you presented her, it was so awesome, really. She, mm. It's just her voice you hear, and her look, her gaze on them. And she curses them. So the first time you actually hear her, she's coming out with huge oaths and sweat. So, I mean, that's also a bit of a shock. You know, we don't normally associate her with that. The gaze was as strong as the curse. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that made her a mythical, powerful figure to me that was much more significant than had you done it from the point of view of historical, like with the François Chandler Nagar does about Madame de Maintenon or I don't know what other historical figure which you really look at it from the point of view Well, of Vida is contradicting what I'm trying to say. She's saying I retain the myth. But <laughs> <laughs> in a sense I did. I, I hope I've done both because I didn't really know how else to deal with it. She, for me, she is both. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. She yes. distance and then she becomes closer and closer and closer. Mm. And it's that distance and the gradual unveiling that I thought was absolutely the other thing is that I had to retain that as a point of tension. It's a narrative device to constantly keep the reader saying, well, when are we going to see her? When are we going to see her? When? So, in fact, you know, you keep wanting to have more of her all the way through, I hope. Yes, you do. <laughs> through the gate of the mayor's wife and her glistening her hair. Yes. Well, you're very kind. <laughs> what was your second question? Oh, it was? Okay. One was the historical fiction, the other was revering too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope I don't. You'll have to tell me whether I succeeded. Yes. It's definitely not um, a description of character in the Western sense. That's for sure. I, I, I've done that kind of writing, and I know how easy it feels like a glove. I can do it. But for this character, I couldn't do it. Not just because I had so much reverence for her, but it had something to do with the, with the time, with the action that she performed of unveiling. And it seemed to me that I had, a, I had to deal with this fact in a different way. Whether it's because I've reverenced her, well, I can't help that to some degree because I was raised to revere her. But in discovering all the contradictions about her, I had to deal with those too. And I've, I've tried to use the device of a, a chorus of women who are like the gossipers. They're forever murmuring and gossiping and talking. and you know, All the contradictions are there in what they're saying, so that your opinion of her is constantly wavering. You know? So you can't keep a steady look on her. You have to keep circling her. You basically circle her. Yeah. That's the yes. I don't know how much I, I, I don't know how to tell you how much I enjoyed the story. I mean, I, I, the bottom line for me when I was listening to you 
going through all these, all the roles, the four roles, and then connecting to the uh, mayor and where, and it was just beautiful. I, I said, I, I got goosebumps <laughs> most of the time. And I got emotional. And, um, I'm waiting for the but. <laughs> I'm just hoping that one day you have it as uh, uh, just you read it yourself, yes. read it yourself, and as they can audio uh, book as soon as possible. It would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And I think you should do that with your saddlebag also. Yes. Thank you so much. I really hoped that, in fact, uh, this is another thing. The, we are obsessed with individualism in, in our Western culture, and of course this is a glorious heritage. It's given us many insights. It's given us incisive tools by which to understand the human psyche, and we should never forget this. But it seems to me that um, I wanted in this book to unveil a whole period and a whole time. I wasn't just unveiling one woman. I wanted to unveil the story of history of the Qajar times. I want to unveil the lives of women in the Qajar period. I, it, I wasn't so interested in unveiling one woman called Tahira Quratul Ain. And that's really the, the point I wanted to make. So that's why I meant that when you keep drawing close to her, hopefully you see a reflection of your own face in seeing back into the Qajar period, what I really wanted a modern reader to say and think was, my God, we're still there. And this, this period is not much different from what we're living today. And the circumstances are not much different either. And the tensions and the problems and the fundamentalism and the fanaticism and the corruption and the political corruption, you know, all of this is actually very, very modern. So that it's not just about the unveiling of one individual called the poetess of Ghazveen. Yeah. But you see, this is the problem, because that's what a Western audience is expecting. That's what the Western reader, reader thinks, you know. The woman who read too much is the title. Oh, let's find out about the woman, you know. But in fact, what we're reading about is about what she read. <laughs> it's how to read a time, how to read a culture, how to read um, her actions, maybe, but not necessarily her psyche. Because frankly, I'm not sure I know her psyche, and I'm not sure I even know my own. 
uh, the only way I can understand myself is in the process of writing about that period and that time. So, you know, it really is more than just an individual portrait, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you wanted to speak. Yes. Are they geared women? No, not at all. No, no, no. Um, the, the Saddlebag is a story um, about, a, about a collection of characters whose paths cross at this particular point, at this particular time. The story goes through 24 hours, and you're looking at events which take place in those 24 hours over and over again through the eyes of different characters. And when you look at who those characters are, you see they're a curious combination. It was all perfectly feasible to find such characters in the middle of the 19th century, which is a period I'm fascinated by, of course. <laughs> that I can't stop. <laughs> um, that I've inherited. <laughs> um, in the middle of the 19th century, who might you have met in a caravan in the middle of the desert between Mecca and Medina. So you have a Bedouin who is a completely illiterate boy. You have a chieftain of the bandits who has great self-importance. You have a young Zoroastrian bride who's on her way to get married to a, an old man in Damascus and she has had to pretend to be a Muslim because her Zoroastrianness is an impediment to her getting married to this rich old Turk. So then you've got a, an, a Hindu who's found his way by a series of mischances in the middle of this desert. He's a money changer. And he's actually a Hindu, but he's pretending to be a Sunni Muslim. Okay? <laughs> then you've got a young uh, Ethiopian Falasha Jew whose ideas of Gnosticism have become completely self-destructive because of circumstances in her life. A beautiful woman who has come to the point of despair and has become profoundly mystical, but suicidal almost, but has Jewish background. Then you have uh, a young priest, intensely fanatical, Shia Muslim, who's on his way to his pilgrimage. <laughs> 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 and then you have a young Englishman who's, who's modelled on several Englishmen of the 19th century like Henry Layard and Richard Burton and these characters who pretends to be a dervish in order to get to Mecca. So he's undisguised and he's completely uh, agnostic, although he comes from a Church of England background. And finally, you have a corpse, a dead man. There's also one other I missed. There's an old monk, a Turkoman, but Buddhist monk, who's come from Turfan, up there. Actually, what you've got is a meeting of religions, a mingling of religious points of view, all revolving around. So it's certainly nothing to do with women. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I talked too much about it. <laughs> Yes, yes. That you can get. Um, you can get that on Amazon.com. It's it's published by Beacon, Beacon Press. It's right here. The saddlebag. It is here. You can get it in English. Bloomsbury has published it. This is the British version. 
Yeah. No, that, yes, that's the British version, but you can get it from Beacon Press. Right. Yeah. Uh, paper uh, is also available. If you give her name to Amazon, uh, these two come up. And you can also get it, uh, if you don't find it on Amazon, you can get it at Polypris. You can get UCD. Uh, and this one, uh, I don't think you can get, unless you ask me. You d <laughs> this one you can get easily on Amazon too, but it's Amazon.fr. The French Amazon. Yeah. La Femme. This is That's the too hard. That's too hard, yes. I'm so sorry. Korean, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, you said that I can get the English version from Amazon.com. You can get the first book. And you can get the second book through Amazon.co.uk, because that's in Britain, Bloomsbury, the Harry Potter people. But you'd have to go through the British Amazon, because it's not distributed in the U U.S. I don't know. I'm waiting for a publisher to pick it up. For, for the third book, yes, I'm waiting for the pub looking for a publisher. Yes. Any of the books in Farsi? Oh no, I don't. No, I don't. Are you I, well, it's really up to. I mean, is there a Persian publisher that would want my book? Would they want to distribute it in Iran? <laughs> I doubt it. Maybe it could have uh, an audience in the so-called diaspora. I didn't address the word diaspora in my lecture, and I apologize for that. Um, I really felt as if what I wanted to say was that um, the whole notion of diaspora for me is a little awkward. I was one of the original generations of diaspora. I grew up in Africa in the 50s. so. I think I have more in common with some of the second generation kids that are now growing up, say, in America or elsewhere, where I have already become somewhat outside the norm. And I have more in common with many other peoples sometimes than even with my own home country. But I can never deny the fact that I come from Iran. It's deeply embedded in me. As you can see, I've, I've, everything I write is obsessed by, by issues to do with Iran and to do with the Middle East. It's just embedded in me. But it's, it's not the same as being a member of an exiled community. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to stress that I found Tahira fascinating as a sort of first Iranian, if you like, international woman. She's my model. Because although she was very much part of the Iranian culture. And as an Iranian, I'm intensely proud that I have that as, as a heritage, if you like. I see her as rising up above just being relevant to Iran and the Middle East. I think she is a voice and a presence that needs to be heard by people everywhere. And as I said, I think she stands in the same league as, as Martin Luther King and Gandhi and the rest. I mean, we just don't know how to pronounce her name yet, but we will. <laughs> Yes. Unfortunately, we have uh, run out of time. Uh, when uh, uh, when I was talking to Farzaneh, uh, she said uh, that you are in for uh, the treat of your life. I wasn't uh, uh, 
ready for uh, what we got in spite of that extremely high expectation. I, I am absolutely honored by your wonderful presentation, humbled by it. And, uh, The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.